Hello and welcome to another edition of the In Context podcast. Today I'm joined by uh, Eddie. Uh, Eddie, you are uh, somebody I've never met in person. This is probably the first time we've we've spoken to. It's, it is, I, I think so. Yeah, but I've followed you for a while on uh, social media. Oh, I am sorry. <laughs> no, you've been really, really encouraging. You've managed to put some of the things that I'm thinking into English, whereas <laughs> I have a lot of stuff in my head and I can't put it down on paper. And I think some of your blogs are fantastic. And Oh, thank you. And it's so succinct as well, how you can get down um, yeah, some deep things in such a short space, whereas I ramble on for hours. So instead of rambling on, uh, introducing <laughs> you, I'll let you introduce yourself. So who are you? Uh, what are you doing and what is your blog post called kuya.net for <laughs> <laughs> so you just want you want my life story in Pretty much. About 30 seconds right um i'm called eddie eddie arthur uh i come from sunderland up the coast from ian northeast of england um grew up in a working class family my dad died when i was uh 11 uh, i became a christian when i was in my teenage years um Cutting further on, I work with an organisation called Wycliffe Bible Translators, and for 12 years we were um, living in Ivory Coast, or Côte d'Ivoire, if you prefer it in French, and there we worked with a group of people called Kouya, um, and we, my wife and I were part of the team translating the New Testament into the Kouya language, um, which is why when I started my blog, calling it Kouya seemed to make sense. Um, that sort of connection is lost somewhere along the line. Yeah. But, you know, you're stuck with the URL once you've got the, you know, once you've got a web address, you can't change it easily. Um, after being involved in, in a translation project, I've basically done a, a whole load of leadership roles with Wycliffe. Um, did an MA and a, a PhD in mission on the way. The last sort of formal thing I did, I was the CEO of Wycliffe Bible Translators in the UK. And after that, you know, it's very hard when you've had the boss and he's sort of still hanging around. Mm. Basically, Wycliffe have freed me up to work with churches and with other mission agencies, basically with anybody to just help them think through and to um, use what I've learned over the years to help and bless others. Mm. So I do the odd project for Wycliffe and for anybody else who asks. So that's me. Awesome. Uh, like I said, I sent you a list of questions before, but often... Uh, when I hear something, I, I, I like to forget the questions I've already written and, and go to... No something. bother at all. But so what, what interests me is you're, you're from Sunderland originally, from a working-class background. Uh, yeah. Also, again, growing up from a young age, fatherless in a, in a similar... So I had a very similar start in life mm -hmm. to me, just 30 miles north uh, from where I am. Yeah, Middlesbrough was the end of the world for us. <laughs> I didn't get south of Middlesbrough, so I'd only been south of Middlesbrough once by the time I was 18. Yeah, well, well, yeah. We, we are probably the most southerly northern town in, in the north of England, aren't we? <laughs> but anywhere further south than Middlesbrough, you're, you're in Yorkshire. Uh, yeah, so how did you get saved then? How did you become a Christian in, in, in an area which is not known for its gospel outreach and gospel churches? Um, I, I mean... It, it's one of those long stories. My mum and dad met at the church. They were in, in a brethren church in uh, Sam Harbour, where uh, my dad grew up, a, a small coal mine in town. But as I said, my dad was a miner. And they met, they were very keen in the church. Um, 
and then my elder brother was born, Phil. You might have met my brother, Phil, or come across him. Right. He's a Grace Baptist. Well, he was a Grace Baptist pastor. He's retired now. Right. Um, and then my next... Then my mum had a, a, a stillbirth, a miscarriage, and then the next brother, number two, was severely mentally handicapped. Mm. And at that point, my mum and dad moved to Sunderland, basically, you know, the big city, to, to get better support. And they drifted away from their church community and they drifted away from faith. You know, so I grew up in a religious atmosphere. Yeah. You know, they were still they were still believers that went to church occasionally, but not engaged. And it wasn't really till my dad died that um, my mom started going back to church again. And it was through that that um, haven't always had a bit of religion in my life. Um, I suddenly discovered the gospel itself and, you know, the, the need for a personal commitment. And just it was that. So, um, you know, I grew up in a Christian household, but not in a Christian household, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's funny, similar to me, well, not not too similar, but there was that always Christian influence. So my, my dad's side of the family was Catholic. My mm -hmm. side was CSE. I was sent to a C of E school, so there was always prayers. Yeah. Uh, within there my favorite book was the the children's bible so uh, yeah we would pray but there mm. was nothing there was no understanding of the gospel but there was yeah. kind of moralistic mm -hmm. there was a belief of like you'd go to sunday school and then you'd go to church at christmas and yeah. kind of thing. yeah 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 so quite similar so what interests me is there's not many people from our background in the church there's even less in ministry so how did you go from being a, a, a young convert in in Sunderland to in the Ivory Coast translating Bibles it, it, it's unique for many people from our background to travel outside of the northeast Aye. To, to, to speak other languages <laughs> never mind to be translating uh, other languages into to, from scripture um I became a Christian at a church youth camp. Mm. We were up in Northumberland. Um, you know, it was late August or whatever it was in uh, 1974. And um, just, you know, I'd, I'd been searching. Um, and then it was actually my brother who led me to the Lord on this church youth camp. Mm. And it was the tradition from the church that um, the young people would go straight from the camp to the Sunday service. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, we'd all troop in smelly. We'd not hmm. washed or slept for 48 hours, but we'd all come and troop into the front of the church and all the old dears would say, oh, aren't they lovely? Um, <laughs> and the preacher that night was from the Belgian Evangelical Mission. Right. And it was the first time in my life that, you know, church actually really meant something to me. Hmm. And I fell asleep in the sermon. <laughs> um, and so there was an after church again this guy from belgian evangelical mission was talking and i just i paid special attention but i just felt the lord say to me you know you don't know how but just clearly uh i want you as a missionary in a french-speaking country and that just never went away um i went to uni i studied biology but just in the back of my mind all the time was 
you're going to work in a French-speaking country. Yeah. Final year at uni, I met Sue, who speaks French, so I married her. Um, <laughs> there's more to it than that. But, <laughs> and just then, you know, we moved down to Southampton where I got a job, and we, after a while, we started looking for openings, you know, looked at different missions in Europe, in France, Switzerland, Belgium, you know, where, where did the Lord have for us? And just nothing opened up. And there's actually a couple in our church in Southampton who'd worked as translators who said to us, you should think of that. And I thought, forget that. I'm going to be a church planter in Europe, in French speaking Europe. But Sue always wanted to be a professional translator anyway. So the idea was interesting. Mm. And we went along to a Wycliffe weekend and it was just like being hit by a truck. Mm. It was just, you know, this is just so obvious. This is what God's got for us. You know, Sue was a translator. She could work in that actually as i'm talking to you she's working with a team uh helping them on the translation of the gospel of john she's working on skype too on on zoom and i had a background as a scientist i was a biologist by then and that background could really help in the early stages of deciphering how a language works and developing a new alphabet and all that and it was just so obvious that the lord had prepared us and then i discovered there was a whole load of translation in french-speaking countries which is how we end up in Ivory Coast. You know, if God had said to me when I was in Sunderland, I want you to go to Africa, <laughs> I'd have just said, forget it. Yeah. You know, French speaking countries for a lad who'd not been south of Middlesbrough very often was still exotic enough, <laughs> but I could believe that. Yeah, yeah. But he took me step by step. And then when we were far enough down the road, he said, Africa, all <laughs> oh, right, we'll go there. Hmm. So what year was that then that you ended up in Africa? I ended up there in 88. Right. And how long have you, you done out there? We were there for 12 years. Right. Um, we came back because the kids were getting to a point where they were in a French government school mm -hmm. and they were getting to the point where we either had to commit to French language all the way through uni or yeah. come back so they could switch into English. Yes. So we came back when our eldest was just about to start GCSEs. Hmm. Well, so how was that transition then? So you've been in, in uh, the Ivory course for 12 years. Uh, you're involved in uh, working with indigenous people. Uh, I presume we, you, we serve in pastors and ch a local church out there while you were out there. Yeah. Um, well, by the time, the end of our time there, I was actually the field leader. Right. So um, Sue had taken on most of the um, responsibility for the translation and I was you know, bossing people around, basically. Um, but I was, I, you know, I was working with local not so much church leaders, but denomination leaders and Bible college leaders and that sort of thing. Um, uh, coming back, I mean, for us, it wasn't that difficult. You know, we're coming back to our home yeah. for the kids who'd only ever visited. Yeah. It was horrible. I mean, you know, Dave was six weeks when we went to live in France so I could learn French. Yeah. And 15 months when we went to Africa. And Sam was born in Africa. Mm. So he came back here a teenager to a foreign country and that, you know, that was really hard for them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it must be, wasn't it? Often. Yeah. You can forget the, the, what we see as positives for missionaries coming home can often be negatives for the kids because it's alien. Oh, yeah. You know, all, all his friends were out there, all his experiences, everything um, brought them back to a new country and it was cold. <laughs> Yeah, and I suppose the education system will be quite different. The culture, yeah. Is different. I mean, it was it was really hard for our day. The first lesson 
you know, he went into a new class. Everybody else knew each other. He was a strange kid. The first lesson was French. Yeah. Well, he'd been in French language school all the time. He spoke French better than the French teacher. Yeah. And, you know, a teenager to be clever, you know, straight away, he's a boff. Yeah. You know, they just <laughs> took the mickey out of him mercilessly. Yeah. Oh, hard. Yeah, again, and that's something very similar in, in, in our context where <clears throat> when people are, are moving into a council estate, if they're not from that estate, to, to plant a church or to plant an existing church, they're often bringing the family with them. And yeah. Yeah, that, that there's huge implications on on the lives of the children as well. There's there's blessings, but yeah, difficulties because uh, I've been arguing for years. I think it doesn't matter where you plant the church now. What we're doing is is cross cultural ministry. I think anyway, regardless. Of yeah, where you, oh, absolutely. Even more so on a council estate, I think, mm-hmm. where. I think it's the church is alien to middle class people, but more palatable. I think it's even stranger. Yeah. On a council estate. Yeah. So, so for me, I think one of the reasons why I wanted to speak with you is just to kind of glean some of your insights from the mission field, uh, what it was like out on the field, uh, some of the mistakes you've seen out there, but uh-huh. also some of the, the the good workings, and and then on your transition back to the UK, what similar mistakes are you seeing yeah happening in the uk church what can we learn from uh, the mission field out in well not just africa but across the world you don't ask easy questions do you <laughs> <laughs> i mean mistakes i think you know best to talk about mistakes i made rather than mistakes other people made yeah, yeah. um and i think the big one was trying to trying to do things before I was ready. Mm. Um, you know, I knew what the gospel was. I was well taught. I'd, you know, I'd been to Bible college. I'd, you know, had um, a, a good, solid, reformed church background. You know, I knew all that stuff. And I had all the answers to the questions nobody was asking. Yeah. And it took a long time for me to understand the context I was working in. You know, okay, I had to learn a new language. Um, a lot of the people spoke French, and I'd, I'd studied French by then. But, um, you know, really to work and to speak to Kuya people, you needed to learn Kuya. Mm. But alongside that, there was just a whole load of other stuff. I mean, when we think about the gospel in our uh, British context, we, we come into it with a, a background of... Um, a culture which has a very strong guilt law framework. Mm. So we tend to present the the gospel in terms of law, forgiveness, guilt, and you know all of which is right, but that's not part of the the Kuya background. Mm. And if you start there, you're starting somewhere where they don't understand you. Mm. You know, to them, they're living in a a world which is just populated by spirits and, you know, <laughs> there's just so much more. Their world is much richer than ours in a sense. You know, we've got this sort of very secular, mechanistic, you know, scientific view. And then God is somewhere floating up there. <laughs> but in Kuya, everything is spiritual. Mm. And all the time they're doing stuff to protect themselves from this spirit 
um, illnesses caused by witchcraft. So you've got to protect yourself from witchcraft. And, you know, everything has a spiritual dimension. And conversion for them primarily is saying, OK, I'm going to stop trusting all of these charms, all of these different things, all these idols that I use to protect me. And I'm going to trust Jesus entirely to protect me. Mm. Now, if you want to get in theologically, that is a repentance from sin, the yeah. sin of relying on other things. But um, that's not how they perceive it. It's just a question of changing your allegiance. And, you know, Paul talks about um, moving from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It's, you know, biblically it stands up. But learning to present the gospel in a way that helped them mm. understand it rather than talking about forgiveness for sin. Um, yeah, they need to understand about forgiveness for sin. But in their context, that comes a bit later. Mm. You know, the big thing is, you know, repentance means turning around and it's turning from serving idols, turning from getting all your protection from idols and everything else to getting all your protect from jesus and actually you know to do that is a massive step you know i um i'd never seen a dead body in england within a couple of weeks in a Kuya village i'd seen quite a few you know death and suffering is so much closer and when all you're hanging on to to keep you safe are the piece of string that's a charm that's tied around your waist and that sort of thing, to say, I'm going to give all that up and trust Jesus in the face of malaria, in the face of massive poverty, is huge. But they do it. Yeah. And, you know, we saw tons of people become Christians. But learning to speak into that context rather than give all the answers I knew from our context was really, really difficult. And I got that one wrong quite a lot. Yeah, and again, so I'm... I've just started studying with theology at all nations and I'm big on contextualization, mm -hmm. but, but looking at how some people do contextualization, they, they will say, right, this, this people group has a different worldview. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll turn scripture around to uh, fit in with this people group mm -hmm. rather than thinking, how does scripture fit in with what this people group thinks? So in a similar way, so when I got saved, I wasn't uh, putting my faith in spirits for protection. Mm -hmm. it was steroids, dormant, swords. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But it was the same issue, wasn't it? So yeah. So for me, it's like let's find out what 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 the issue is and how can we mm -hmm. relate it. So as soon as you mentioned that protection, I'm like, wow, yeah, that was was an idol for me, but it wasn't spirits protecting me. Yeah. For the middle class, it might be the, the pensions or the or the ICER or whatever. Yeah. So how how do you do contextualization well so that we are finding out uh, and listening to the people we're trying to reach, but staying faithful to the word of God while you do it? I, I think there are two things. I think one is that we, we've got to realize that all of us come into this with a focus and a limited picture of what the gospel is. Yeah, 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 the gospel is always bigger than our imagination. You know, mm. define the gospel. You're gonna miss something out. Yeah. You know, um, you know, I grew up with this picture of you know the gospel um, is me and my personal savior. Mm. You know, it's all about me getting saved. Well, you know, 
the New Testament pictures this. It's not just about you getting saved. It's about you being saved with others and drawn into a family. Mm. You know, it's me and my personal saviour isn't something the Bible knows about. Yeah. You know, so, so you know, the, the gospel is just bigger. And just admitting that, first of all, you know, we, we tend to think in terms of guilt from here. Asians tend to think in terms of shame. Well, Romans has tons to say about shame. <laughs> and, you know, um, and that, you know, as I mentioned, Africans, broadly, you're thinking about power. Well, the, you know, the gospel has a lot to say about defeating the powers and um, giving your allegiance to the kingdom of Christ rather than the kingdom of darkness. So just start by realising that the gospel is a bit bigger than we think it is. That's not saying it, you know, not losing its essence. But, you know, God is big and his, his work of salvation is huge and it encompasses everything. And then it's listening to people and seeing where they scratch, where they, where they itch rather, mm. and helping them in that point. It's not about changing the gospel, but it's about applying those bits of the gospel which are relevant. You know, um, just thinking through the pandemic, so many people have been, you know, isolated in block of flats with their kids they've been lonely they've been depressed what's the gospel got to say to them it's got to say to them you turn to jesus and you're brought into a family mm. your earthly family might have deserted you and you know what even the church family won't be perfect but you are brought into a family you become part of something you know it's not just a relationship to jesus the relationship to jesus is absolutely central that's where, you know, that's everything hangs on that. Everything hangs on the cross. Um, but it has more to offer. You know, it's not just about, well, you'll be, you'll be lonely, but at least you'll have Jesus. Mm. No, it's you'll have Jesus and you'll, have part, you'll be part of Jesus' family. And for somebody, you know, stuck in a block of flats and then the church showing real love to that person. You know, sometimes contextualization just means going and sitting on somebody's sofa mm. and having a cup of tea with them because they're lonely. Yeah. And, and I like what you said at the start of that, where you, where you said it's it's listening to people. Mm. And uh, I think that's one of the biggest failures that I've had, where, <laughs> where you get a bit of knowledge and uh, you, you, you mentioned the mistake you had where you thought you knew it all and you had the yeah. gospel and you just go in. And I think my failure to listen, having the answers to the wrong questions. Uh, so how did you learn uh, to listen well when you were out in uh, Ivory Coast? And what did you learn through listening to the Kua people group that you were uh, serving? I don't know that I ever learned to listen well. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I'm a, I'm, it's not my job, but I'm a preacher. You know, I don't listen. <laughs> um, it's it's a constant struggle. You know, I wish I wish I was better at it. Yeah. Um, and you you learn partly by your mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, but what did I learn, I think, a number of things that I learned from the Kuya above everything, just the question of trust. Mm. You know, okay, it might seem dramatic that I you know I, I went with my wife and small kid out and lived in a, in a, a village in the rainforest no running water no electricity um you know the nearest tarmac road you couldn't get to it in wet season 
you know, we're pretty isolated. That sounds dramatic as if I was trusting. But, you know, when people are brought up in such grinding poverty and yet they turn to Jesus and they trust him implicitly. Mm. Um, and, and the degree of expectancy in the prayer life, um, you know, really expecting that God would come through for them. Okay, you, you, you know, it's very fashionable in the West to talk about the excesses of the um, prosperity gospel in Africa and people, you know, praying for BMWs and all that stuff. But when you, when you come from this universe where everything is spiritual, you really are expecting God to, mm. to act. You're expecting God to speak to you. You know, there's just in church a much higher expectation that God would speak through the preaching than we get here. Mm. You know, in prayer, yeah, God is going to answer. God is going to answer because that's what God does. Whereas um, we tend to. I don't know. Have less expectation. It's honestly, it's it's amazing, and just from from the providence of God, it's like a counselling session for me. This, so I, I got saved into a, a charismatic background. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so every time I read the Bible, I was expecting God to speak. Every time I heard a sermon, I was yeah. Like, what do you have to say to me today? I was trusting in Him for mm -hmm. everything. Uh, I come from not. I was. I got saved when I was contemplating suicide. So. I, I, I have nothing to live for now. I had everything to live for. The mm -hmm. only reason for living was for Jesus. And, and people would similarly think that uh, I was faithful because I would, uh, in their eyes, risk a lot for the gospel. But mm -hmm. the only things I risked were things that weren't that great to me. <laughs> I still had idols like my family. And the more comfortable I got, mm -hmm. the less risks I took, the more, uh, I say, reformed in my theology got, the less... I, I listened to God and I and, and I spoke to him more and mm -hmm. I would rather than listened. I, I didn't expect him to speak to me through his word. I thought, what can I learn from reading? Mm -hmm. So I think I lost a lot of what the Kui group seemed to have, mm -hmm. which I think is more biblical than what yeah. we as the I, Western Church do. I'll, I'll never forget. I was um, chatting to a, a very well-known mm -hmm. um, Reformed pastor and we just agreed that there was something we really thought needed to happen. Yeah. And I said, okay, look, let's, let's just together covenant to pray for this. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, just because we pray for it doesn't mean it'll happen. You know, the Bible says you don't have because you don't pray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, okay. I, I struggle with prayer. Everybody does, but you know, God does answer prayer. But you don't struggle when you've been diagnosed with an illness or what no. response does, or you're, you're about to lose your house, or you know what yeah. I mean? When we're faced with crisis, we never struggle. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. When COVID hit, I'll imagine there was more prayers than there'd been for 100 years. Yeah. <laughs> but, but again, I think it's our, so, so the idolatry of the Kuya people within the spirits, we have the mm. idolatry within other things that we feel protect us. Yeah. Uh, so again, very, very, mm -hmm. uh, the outworking very different, but the heart issue very. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So how have you brought that then? The lessons, some of the le lessons you've learned, some of the mistakes you've made. You, you're back in the UK. You, you're now part of a church and part of the the Western uh, Church again. What mistakes can you see the church replicating that you made? And uh, what I, I was think 
I think, again, I start by saying, you know, what mistakes do I make? You know, I came back and I'm a pain in the neck. Um, I, I vowed when we went to Africa that I would never come back and be one of those awkward missionaries who was unhappy with everything. And I came back and I was one of those awkward missionaries who was unhappy with everything. You know, you... I think what makes you a missionary makes you awkward, so you can't get away from that. Well, I, I think it does to some extent, but also you, you're in a different context. You're used to, you, your Christian context is all about reaching out. Mm. And you're mixing with a huge range of people from, you know, across the evangelical spectrum, mm. from different cultures, different languages. And, you, you know, your focus, you know, ours was Bible translation, but it is still, you know, evangelism and mission essentially and you get back into a church and that's not happening and um it took me a good decade to learn to shut up i think i am um, i burned a few few bridges and i hurt a few people that i shouldn't have and you know i've tried to ask forgiveness over the time and to um build bridges again but I think the you know the first thing I'd say is I came back and I was a pain in the neck, um, so that's the first big mistake. I, on the other side, I, I think basically, I mean you can go back to the Roman Emperor Augustine, but I, I think the church in Europe has become an institution. Mm. It's in maintenance mode. You know, it just assumed if you're European, you're a Christian. Mm. And, you know, everybody got baptised. You know, parts of Europe was Catholic, parts of Europe was Protestant. Um, but basically, you know, everybody was christened or um, baptised in, if they were older, in some churches. Those who didn't make a profession of faith were very few and far between. Mm. And then... Over 100, 100, 150 years, Christianity's been on a decline in Europe. Um, we've had far less institutional Christianity. People who are not believers are um, in the majority now. But the church has not changed its stand, stance. We still think we're operating in a world where people want to be Christians. Mm. You know? I think a lot of our mission and evangelism is sort of based on the premise, well, people would be Christians if they just knew what it was all about. Hmm. Whereas actually people are much further away than that. You know, being a Christian isn't even in their thinking. Um, and when they do think about Christians, we are the bad guys. Yeah. Um, you know, we are homophobic, we are sexist, um you know uh, probably racist all of the um all, all of the current terms can be flung at us mm. and when we are inviting somebody to become a christian as far as our society is concerned we're asking them to join the dark side join the dark side luke <laughs> because our society sees us as being the bad guys and i don't think in our mission as the church we've listened enough to know where our society is yeah. i think we're still evangelizing in the 1950s and don't you <clears throat> and, and because of that i think 
we had some validity to those who think we're homophobic, that we're racist, that because yeah. when we're faced with a social problem, our response generally is that's not the question we're willing to answer. We're just going to take you straight to the cross. Yeah. And, and I think by not listening to the fears, the worries and the concerns, of mm -hmm. the, we, we just back ourselves into a corner and no one wants to join us, listen to us. And, yeah. and there's so much anger aimed towards us by a lot of society, isn't there? Especially yeah. in the media. I mean, you know, when I became a Christian, it was pretty easy. Yeah. You know, I'd gone to Sunday school all my life. I knew the Bible stories. You know, we'd had RA at school. Um, I was just thinking, listen to the sermon on Sunday at church here, you know, and remembering we'd done that very same story at primary school. You know, I had all that background. I understood the basics of the Christian faith. I hadn't quite got the grips with the gospel and my need for repentance and personal commitment to Jesus. But once I got that, it was an easy step. Most people in the UK now are years away from that. And there will be miraculous conversions where people hear the gospel and become believers overnight. But for most, it's going to be a long process because they haven't a clue what we're talking about. Well, for me, it was 15 years. Yeah. First hearing the gospel to understanding it. Mm -hmm. And you, I'd heard God was a father to the fatherless, which meant something to me as a yeah. fatherless. But I didn't understood understand that he was king of kings, that he was judged, that yeah. I felt like a victim. And Jesus died to make my life better, not so that I could repent. And yeah, run. brilliant. So, yeah. The coffee's I'm, just arrived. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so I'm sat there thinking, this Christianity lack isn't very good. I was told... Jesus died because he loved me and wanted my life to be better, but it's getting worse. This It's not working. Yeah. Rather than understanding that Jesus died because I was a sinner, I need to repent and live for him instead of myself. And then yeah. th this life might not get better, but at least I mean, have an eternal hope where it will be perfect. And yeah. long time to understand that. And how bonkers is that concept? Jesus died for me. Yeah. What? <laughs> you know, if, if, you, if you just back off from our understanding, you know, we... It makes sense to us. Yeah. But you just back off a bit. It makes no sense at all. And Paul says that. Yeah. You know, it's a stumbling block. It's a scandal. Mm -hmm. And it is to our society. And we can't expect people to grab it, grab onto it immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Like you say, whether you're in with the Kuya, whether you're with an Alaskan, whether you're with a Canadian, or whether you're with somebody in Middlesbrough or, or, or Sunland, you've got a like just coming up and say Jesus loves you, that winds me up all the time. People on yeah. the street, Jesus loves you, Jesus died for you. They're like, why? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, people that aren't even cared about the soldiers who die for us. Do you know what I mean? Who, who are yeah. fighting wars for us in the present day? Why would they be interested in somebody two thousand years ago dying? Yeah, yeah. And and again, I think that's probably an opposite thing. My biggest mistake is I'm. All the questions I'm asking, I know the questions uh, that the people in my community are asking, but where I fail to listen is to people from different communities, and I, mm -hmm. and I kind of made the working class, in particular the white working class, the mission to people like me became a bigger mission than to anybody else, and that almost became an ideology to me where uh, New Life Church was my idol and my own. Yeah. Anything outside of that was kind of secondary. So mm -hmm. how do we maintain that balance from 
promoting a ministry that's vital without letting it become an idol and uh, I suppose the ego taking over. Mm -hmm. I, I think I think that's something we all struggle with. You know, if you're in ministry, you've got that temptation yeah. because you're putting your time into it. You know, and when you're in ministry, it, it, it's not like a secular job because the people you're working with, the people you're encountering, the people you're helping, they're your friends and your Christian brothers as well as, you know, they're not just colleagues. Mm. So it becomes all consuming in a way that other things are. And it's just so easy to get focused on, on the ministry. You know, I, my, my, my thing is international mission. Mm. And I want to um, convince someone like yourself that, you know, <laughs> your church should be doing stuff to support mission around the world. Mm. And because that's my thing, I can lose sight of the importance of the local church mm. and the role of the pastor. And, how do you get away from it? I think the only way is community, church community. I think, you know, that's where um, we can learn to thrive. I think, you know, for pastors interacting as friends mm -hmm. with their congregation, yeah. it's just so important to help them get a broader um picture you know if pastors are just meeting with other pastors who've got the same problems they're not getting their heads above the water mm. so it but you know I, I i think again i think just one of the things i learned in africa is just the importance of the church the importance of the christian community as a discipling tool as a way of helping us to think less of ourselves and think more of others mm. and it's also a foretaste of heaven I mean, sometimes it feels like a foretaste of the other place, but um, <laughs> but you know, it is. It, it's a foretaste of what's coming to us as well. So again, I, I mentioned this earlier that I've I've started studying uh, theology at All Nations College, which, uh, if we're being tribalistic, would be outside my theological tribe. Uh, I've lectured there a few times. Oh yeah, cool. Can I? Yeah, well, definitely outside my theological travel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but again, it's such a mixture. And when I say outside, I'm not saying there's not people like, I'm not saying there's not people there like me who yeah. think like me, but it's diverse. And I think that's not a, a negative reflection on all nations, but rather a negative reflection upon my tribe that we are so insular that there's such a desperation to protect what we see as valuable that we mm -hmm. expect others uh, at the expense of that. And how do we, I've got a number of questions here. So I've gone in there, I've seen how gracious uh, the college are in A, accepting me without any qualifications, B, mm -hmm. accepting me as somebody who's quite argumentative and opinionated, <laughs> yet still being gracious and loving towards me. Uh, but so I, I see there's a, there's a disconnect between the reformed churches and uh, the wider church while I'm at the college, I also see a disconnect between missiologists and theologians and mission and churches and, and pastors and missionaries. Why is there mm -hmm. such a divide, do you think, between uh, God's people? I, I mean, I think ultimately it's because um, we have an enemy who wants to divide us. 
Sorry, what was that, bro? We have an enemy who wants to divide us. Definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think that's the bottom line. Yeah. And um, in our own ways, we're all too willing to accept that. Yeah. You know, um, those of us from a more conservative background, we value truth, we value doctrine, yeah. um, and we make those the defining defining things. Mm-hmm. And yet Jesus places a high um, priority on unity. You know, uh, John 17, the um, high priestly prayer doesn't just talk about unity between those of us who hold on to certain doctrines it's you know it's for all believers um and he he, you know he doesn't um divide between you know fiec acts 29 um new frontiers elon pentecostal or whatever um you know we're we're all in it together Mm -hmm. and i i think too The, the divide between mission and um, and the church, I think partly it's what I said just in, you know, earlier about the church has tended to become um, institutionalized. Mm. And then those who work on the outsides of that, be it overseas missionaries or be it, you know, with groups like Youth for Christ or, you know, there isn't an easy place for them to fit within the church. Mm. And I, I think... Um, Nothing is evangelicals. We we tend to be far too pragmatic. We'll do what works, mm-hmm. and so if the easiest thing to do is to set up a new organisation, sorry about Medhurst, we'll do that. <laughs> Whereas, um, you know, is the better way to find a way of getting the local church to do something. I think sometimes we, um, you know, it's no no comment on, it, on any organisation. I'm going to have to be careful here because I work for a parachurch organisation, but. Would it be better to go a bit slower mm. and have the local church take the lead mm. rather than set up something different? Mm. And I think we've been very quick to um, sp- set up new organisations when we didn't always need to. Mm. Um, it, it's I've, I've done some research. I, I, I published on my blog that you know even though evangelicalism is declining in the UK. The number of foreign mission agencies is increasing. Mm. You know, why do we need more mission agencies when there are fewer Christians? <laughs> uh, you know, it makes no sense. But we just spin off things because it's easier. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've, I think I've waffled there. Ask me another question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, I was just I was just talking about the like the disconnect between missiology and theology, the way it's studied between missionaries and and, and, and and pastors and the church and mission agencies. And, uh, for me, I think every pastor should study missiology and every missionary study theology. Do you know what I mean? I yeah, think absolutely. We're doing the same job. The local church needs to be central to everyone who's being mm-hmm. sent out and who's being... So the church that's sending the missionary needs to be invested. The church that's receiving the missionary needs to... So. There just seems to be a disconnect between all these vital components. I think it's a, a negative effect on it. I was speaking to a woman uh, in America who runs an organization called the Surge Network. She's uh, reformed. Her husband's a reformed Baptist pastor, Danae mm-hmm. uh, Pierre. She is, uh, she's, she's, her aim is to help local churches preach the gospel in, in, in deprived urban contexts. Right. Yeah, she's gone into an area where the only Christian 
was a female Pentecostal uh, pastor. Mm-hmm. Theologically, she's a complementarian. Mm-hmm. She's not going to go into this area where this fearful believer served yeah. for like 40 mm-hmm. years and denigrate what she's done because mm-hmm. that community see her as a pastor. So her, her aim isn't to uh, change the ecclesiology. It's to yeah. go and support the gospel being preached in an area where it's neglected. So I mm-hmm. had this woman on and I was really encouraged and thinking, what can I learn from this mm-hmm. uh, inclusiveness? And I'm accused of being woke. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got pastors from my tribe accusing me of being woke because I'm looking at people doing things different, but it's working. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, how can we learn from others who are doing things different? Yet then, I, then I'll then I'll go into a into a mission setting, and I'm careful with what I'm saying because I'm frightened of offending people with mm-hmm. my with my beliefs on doctrine and what is the truth. Mm-hmm. But it, it's a I can understand the difficulty in walking this balance for you. Yeah. But I think it's worth the effort. Would you? Yeah. Think? I mean, you know, I, I would say that one of the things I've learned, you know, I was, I was I was the hottest prot on the on the planet i was you know i was so reformed that calvin thought i was extreme um but over the years i think i've become genuinely evangelically ecumenical yeah yeah. you know uh with those who you know believe the same things about the centrality of scripture the need for the cross the need for a a personal conversion Mm. um I, i can worry about the other stuff you know there are places where i'm you're going to disagree and you can be open about that but you know what I, i'm living in a place i, I live in uh, sort of north yorkshire west yorkshire border now there are fewer even evangelicals here than in japan yeah. you know um we need to stop worrying about some of being pressures about you know protecting our own turf and our own ideas um people need jesus yeah you know, and if they if they find Jesus through the Pentecostal Church, brilliant. Mm. They found Jesus. Yeah. And and one of the other things I think I, I've got a mate who's a pastor in the Northeast, and you know, similar theological position to you and I. And he says he's got to hand it to them that in terms of working with the um, the hard to reach, you know, council state communities, it is Pentecostal churches who are doing the hard the hard yards. Mm. Um, and you know, he might might wish his tribe was doing it, but you just got to you know give credit where credit's due. Doesn't mean you agree with everything. Yeah. Well, you know, when we get, I don't know any evangelical reform guy who agrees with themselves anyway. Do you know what I mean? It's, <laughs> there's enough there's enough arguments within uh, Christian reform Twitter than anywhere else. I think. Yeah. Well. I know I know that in the context it may not be safe to quote NT Wright, but, but I love I love his quote is that at least 25% of everything I write is wrong. My problem is I don't know which 25%. Yeah. Yeah. I'd go a bit higher than that for myself. But... Well, I would too. You know. He's a bit brighter than me. My wife would go even higher still. <laughs> oh, great. Eddie, I, I, I really love chatting with you, and I know we haven't probably kept on topic with a lot of the things, but I think, uh, yeah, I think your, your blog posts that you, you've looked at are great. I, I think one of the 
the big things that I've seen you write about and in your heart is, is is paternalism. Can you just share a little bit about how paternalism has had a negative effect on the gospel on overseas missions and how we can do the similar thing over here in the UK? Um, oh, man. <laughs> so 500 years of the missions movement. <laughs> One of the things that I was told repeatedly in Ivory Coast was Christianity is a white man's religion. Mm. It's all right for you white people. It's not for us. Go back to the to scripture and one of the first non-Jewish converts was an Ethiopian. Mm-hmm. And you know one of the uh, the elders in uh, in Antioch was um a black man. Yeah. Christianity spread into Asia before it came to Europe. Mm. Have you ever thought about um, ah, Apollos? Mm. He came from Alexandria mm. in Africa. He went to Ephesus, which is in Asia, <laughs> where he was trained. You know, so uh, Priscilla and Aquila got alongside him and yeah. gave him some training. So basically, he came from Africa, went to Bible college in Asia, and then went and ministered in Europe, in Greece. Mm. You know, completely international. And yet, we've got this idea that the gospel comes from. The West comes from, you know, basically the North Atlantic, and that we own it and that we take it to other places. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas not, it's always been international. You know, there were probably small churches in China before there were small churches in the UK. Um, sorry, I've, I don't know if you, my reminders are just popping up there. Um, and, and that's hurt the gospel in as much as people say, well, it belongs to you. It doesn't belong to us. It's not for us. And then we try and impose, you know, our ways of doing things. So, you you know, you get the silly examples of um, church choirs in Africa wearing thick, heavy robes, you know, which might make sense mm-hmm. if you're in a drafty cathedral <laughs> in the middle of winter in Northumberland. Yeah. It makes no sense, you know, when it's 35 outside and 95% humidity. Hmm. But you get that sort of thing, you know, where Christianity comes with very definite Western leanings. But but it can be more subtle. Um, it's been suggested that Christianity is the greatest secularizing force hmm. in the developing world because we come with this idea, you know, so much of our Christianity is shaped more by the Enlightenment, the idea that, you know, there is a, a divide between the physical world and the spiritual world mm. than by the Bible. You know, the Bible doesn't see such a divide, but we go into other parts of the world um, and what people pick up isn't the message of the gospel. They pick up our scientific rationalism. Um, paternalism. I, the other side of things is we are really good at killing off local initiative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, either by pouring money in, by telling people how to do things. Um, you know, the, you get the ludicrous examples which do exist of short-term teams from churches going and painting the same church every six months, just a different team. Yeah. Um, but you know what? Very often, what we do is we export unemployment. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know one church who were very keen on sending somebody to do 
to train local people in accountancy in an African country where I knew three people who were unemployed accountants. Um, you know, why can't you equip one of those to go and do the sort of training and bookkeeping and things? Um, why go to vast lengths to pay for a flight for a Brit to go out and do something that a local person could do better for a lot cheaper? Um, there, are, there are all sorts of things, but basically we can very easily kill local initiative. I, and I think um, the similar thing can happen in Britain. What, one of the things that um, is absolutely central to life in Britain is the class system. Yeah. Now, I would say that I'm a working class lad who's graduated to be in middle class. Huh. Um, you know, I was drinking espresso there. I wasn't a mug in this cafe. How posh can you get? They didn't have, they didn't have that in Sunderland when I was a lad. Um, but the class system pushes everything, and you've got groups of people who basically have ingrained into them that they are better equipped, better qualified, and no more than others. Oh. And it is so easy for middle-class churches, um, middle-class preachers and teachers to assume that they know what is best in working-class communities. Because, to be honest, our culture and our society has told them that they are. Mm. You know, they're just taking the attitudes of our betters, <laughs> which has been part of British society for hundreds of years, mm. and taking that across into, into um, church life. Mm. And it can be very, very easy you know, within the sort of context you're working for people from big city churches who've got all the money and all the resources to tell you how to do stuff. Yeah. Because that's how we do things in this country. Mm. Um, I, you know, bit of a rant and a bit of a lefty, but, you know, sanctifying the class system is yeah. something we desperately need to do in this country. Yeah. Amen, brother. Amen. For what? <laughs> It's not me going on about it, <laughs> but yeah, that is that, that's a that's a definite. But again, like you say, we can soon uh, we've got to watch ourselves because we can soon become like that ourselves, can't we? Oh, so, aye, absolutely. As a pastor, as soon as I yeah. get into a position of authority, um, I'm quite controlling, and I'm mm -hmm. pull back. Not only do uh, networks denominations and larger churches stifle local progress but i think the local pastor can stifle progress in the local church as well oh i, I mean any leadership role you know pastor or you know as ceo wickliffe yeah. i just had to learn get out of the way yeah, yeah. you know your staff know how to do these things much better than you do yeah. you know make sure they've got what they need and then let them get on with it yeah. well nathan he thrived when i was on sabbatical after yeah before I start my new role and again he's thriving and and sometimes I think learning to know when to get out the way is the the best course for, for all of us in ministry isn't it I think God gives us yeah some of us a vision to start stuff and I think you can outstay your welcome mm -hmm. I, think I was in danger of that and uh like you say when you hold things preciously and think it's your mission not God's mission yeah. that's when we get in the way isn't it I think, you know, a lot, very few congregations or Christian organisations wish that their pastor or leader had stayed longer. <laughs> <laughs> but 
But an awful lot of them wish he'd left earlier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think you'll be getting a few amens from New Life Church, Middlesbrough. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, you know, I'm very glad that Wycliffe sensibly just basically, you know, put me on one side for a while. You know, I'd I'd been I'd I'd been the um the director, and I'd be a pain in the neck for the for my successor if i hung around yeah <laughs> so i went off and did something else you know and you know i'm glad that wickliffe allowed me to do that and for the guy following on that was so much better <laughs> <laughs> oh eddie uh I'd, I'd love to chat all day i think uh, if you're up for it would i'll schedule another interview because uh there's so much that i'd like to ask you i no no knee bother knee bother at all yeah, it was just with your with your little reminders popping off there. I'm aware that I've kept you ten minutes over, so. <laughs> no, that that's all right. It's just a couple of emails I've got to write later today. Right, but I just think one of, one of the things I've noticed is, like, I think one of the issues with uh, you, you mentioned about the church being seen as a white man's uh, religion, uh, in in the UK, possibly seen as a middle class man's religion. Uh, and there's a big pushback on a lot of theology being done mm. by white middle-aged Western men. And here we have two white middle-aged yeah. <laughs> Western men discussing theology. H how can we uh, encourage uh, partnership with ethnic minorities, especially in the north of England, where we have uh, big communities of mm -hmm. ethnic minorities, yet very few pastors uh, and yeah, how, how can we see that change other than prayer? I, 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 well, prayer helps, but I would have a, a Google around mm -hmm. and find out who are the congregations meeting in, in, in Middlesbrough or wherever. Yeah. There will be a good number of African congregations. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the interesting things that the white church in Britain is middle class. Yeah. The African church, which is the part of the church that's growing, Mm -hmm. is working class and i think one of the huge challenges we'll have in britain at the moment is nigerian Ghanaian churches don't know how to reach us yeah yeah, yeah. you know they're making all the same mistakes that <clears throat> white missionaries made 150 years ago in africa um but reach out across you know they'll be um denominationally they won't be in the same place as you yeah, yeah. but there will there will be a number of evangelical congregations probably with part-time pastors you know meet them for a coffee find out what's on their heart find out what their challenges are and just you know get together and have a coffee every couple of months and get to know them get to know their families mm -hmm. um i think you know friendship is just so important you, we leap to doing projects you know oh right there's you know there's there's a Nigerian congregation um, just in the, you know, a mile away. Let's do something together. Now, make friends, mm. get to know them as brothers and sisters, and then, you know, see what the Lord does between you. Mm. But any reasonably sized town in Britain now has a number of African churches. There may well be Asian congregations too, but they're fewer and far, far between. And the Redeemed Christian Church of God, which is a Nigerian Pentecostal denomination, has a, a vision to plant a church within five minute, 
30 minutes walk or five minutes drive mm. of everybody in a town and city in Great Britain. Wow. And they're well on their way to doing that. Yeah. The problem is they're almost all Nigerians and Ghanaians going. Yeah. Um, but, you know, go and grab a coffee with a Nigerian pastor. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it'll be a real blessing. Times it'll be frustrating. Frustrating for him too. <laughs> Probably more so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, some, some great advice there, brother. Oh, look, Eddie, it's been wonderful. I really appreciate your time. No and, bother. And I uh, hope to speak to you again soon. Oh, that'd be great, Ian. Thanks very much. And, you know, um, you, you mentioned, I don't I don't think it's going to be on the podcast, but you mentioned your plans and your changing role and, you know, the Lord bless you. It sounds really exciting. And thank you for planting a church in Middlesbrough. Yeah. Um, you know, part of the world that means a lot. And, um, you know, I really hope there's a lot of people with a decent accent when we get to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> me too brother me too awesome and what i'll do is i'll put a link to uh your website as well smashing thank you anything else you'd like linking to is it, is um no that'll 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 do um <laughs> I've, got, I've got a running blog too but you don't want to link to that <laughs> i'm sure there's a couple who might actually old man in tights <laughs> brilliant uh eddie thanks very much for joining me on the in context podcast no bother god bless God oh, bless me. Thank you. Right. Bye.